0: and thank you. Thank you for that introduction, very kind. Although the part about saying the next few minutes (laughs) may not be as true as people would wish out there. But I'd like to welcome you also to Christ Community Bible Church this morning. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Cow tipping. Wedding rice makes birds explode. Gum stays in your stomach for seven years, crop circles and a myriad of reasons the Red Sox couldn't win a World Series. We've all heard these legends, we've all heard these myths that are out there and they're pretty much harmless. We laugh and we enjoy them and some of us though, perhaps even Jared, may believe some of the Red Sox myths and excuses but generally no harm, no foul in those myths. But what about theological myths, or as we would say, false teaching? What about the false teachers who go about spreading things that aren't true? A man named Arius in the early 300s AD created a huge problem when he declared that Jesus was a created being and not eternally God. That's what he said. And it threw Christendom into chaos for decades. Other false teachers have said that Jesus never became human. One man even claimed to be the Holy Spirit incarnate. Well, we don't believe those and they have not hung around. What are some, well some of them have, but what are some of the most long lasting and yet destructive false teaching that have been around? People are still trying to say there is no God. They're saying the scripture is not inspired nor inerrant. They'll say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But one one of the false teachings that we hear and it's near the top of our list and it's an ancient one is that we can somehow earn our own salvation. It's an ancient falsehood and it continues to to today. And 2000 years ago, a man named Nicodemus approached Jesus and he had that question on his heart. How do I earn salvation? So please open up your copy of God's word to the book of John chapter three, if you have your copy of God's word with you. And that's where we will be today. Like I said, it's a passage that's probably familiar to you, perhaps not, but we're going to dig into the text to see what, what God has to say this morning. So last week, Jared was teaching through first John chapter five. In that passage, we saw terms like born of him and born of God. The apostle John wasn't making up these terms. He was repeating what Jesus had taught during his earthly ministry. Jesus said that we must be born again. It's the same concept John said when we must be born of him or or born of God. And even the term born again is very popular today. It's generally known and used and, and misused. There have been sports figures who have had things said that they were born again in their careers. Other people have claimed to be born again and yet no change in their lives and how they lived. But to be born again is at the heart of salvation. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he or she has been born again. So it's extremely important. Again, it's foundational as to what it means to be a Christian. We hear people say they're born again or they describe themselves as born again Christians. That's good biblical language, but what does it mean? Words have meaning and this is key. We're talking about the doctrine of regeneration. Again, this is essential Christian doctrine. There's another doctrine of total depravity that informs us that we're all born spiritually dead. Passages such as Romans 3.23 say for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins, dead in your trespasses and sins. And they describe a universal sinful condition as spiritually dead and therefore, we must be made spiritually alive. And this is the doctrine of regeneration. And as Tommy was reading that passage, there should have been a word that that kind of popped out at you, a a word that was repeated. I counted eight times in that passage. and That is the word born. Yet in the entire 10 verses that we read and and the following passages, if you read them, there is not a how-to manual. There's not a guide that tells us how to be born again. It simply declares it as fact that we must be born again. And the analogy of birth is crucial to our understanding. See, the Bible is filled with word pictures and illustrations and Jesus taught parables and it was all to give us an idea. What does it mean? So when they describe spiritual birth or to be born again, it should bring to mind what it means to be born. And the aspect that it's bringing to mind for us is, we did not participate in our own birth. In time long ago, we did not decide that we would become a person or a being. That never happened. We did not make that decision. And this is the point that Jesus is making, that if you were to be born again, if you were to be spiritually born, That is not your own act. That is not your own works. That is not your own doing. It's one of those word pictures provided in scripture to describe what happens to us when we're made spiritually alive. Scripture also talks about spiritual cleansing or spiritual creation or spiritual resurrection. However, here Jesus chose spiritual birth. He wanted to make the point that this is not our own doing but a work of God. And again, we did not decide sometime long ago before even our conception that we would be born. There's a saying that you cannot pick your parents or you cannot pick your family. Well, we didn't even pick that that we would or would not be born. And that's why Jesus uses this word picture to describe regeneration. And as a reminder, The kingdom of God is at stake. The realm of salvation and all the blessings of salvation. This is eternal life. This is what is at stake. So the stakes are high. And as we read through this passage, we're going to see three different sections that it's kind of broken up into. The first couple verses, I call it the tribute. And it's where Nicodemus approaches Jesus. And he doesn't really ask a question, but he comes and he kind of pays tribute to Jesus. The second part is the, theolo- uh, the theology discussion. And it's kind of interesting because in this section, these next few verses, Jesus actually changes the discourse from second person to third person. It's, it's a theological discussion that's going on and the truth that's coming out. And you can see the gears are turning in Nicodemus' head as he's trying to figure out what it all means. And then finally, the mystery of the Holy Spirit's activity in our salvation. So let's read the tribute. Beginning of verse one, says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Notice that there's not a question in there. And yet he came to Jesus by night. Obviously, there's something on his mind. He didn't come to Jesus by night just to tell him that. But who was Nicodemus? He's only mentioned in the Gospel of John. So what do we know about him? Well, from this passage, we learn that he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. Also, if we take a look at verse 10, we also learn that he was not only a teacher, In Israel but notice what verse 10 says are you the teacher of Israel he was a master teacher he was learned he was noble he was highly esteemed he was the teacher of Israel and as a Pharisee he was part of a group of Israelites that strictly followed the Old Testament law and rabbinic traditions you see, Israel was designed to be a theocracy where it was governed and ruled by God alone, but the people of Israel desired a king and God gave them a king and they became a monarchy, but still trying to follow the laws of God occasionally. But something happened at the, at the exile. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians took the Israelites into captivity and destroyed the temple. You see, prior to that, to be Jewish meant that you lived in the land of Israel and your life and your worship was centered around temple worship and temple activity. That's that's who you were. Then all of a sudden you're taken into captivity. And the question arises, are we still Jewish? Because I thought to be Jewish meant we were in the land and we worshiped at the temple. So The Jewish leaders at the time were trying to figure out, what does it mean to be Jewish? And they decided that what it means to be Jewish is not so much the temple worship, but it's following the Torah, following the law, what we call the Old Testament. They wanted to follow the law. That's what would set them aside. And then from that time of captivity, with only brief exceptions, they have always been under foreign rule. Foreigners governed their land, occupied their land. And so different factions sort of formed. There were the folks that were like, you know what? We're gonna go along and get along and we're gonna make money doing it. And they cooperated with whoever it was they needed to cooperate, whether that be uh, the Greeks or the Romans, and they made money and the Sadducees would be a group that falls into that. They were doing well financially. But there was another group that was more of an isolationist but in the midst of the occupation. They were the ones who said, we are gonna be Jewish. We're gonna kind of sort of pretend the rest of them don't exist. We're gonna follow the law. We'll be a group unto ourselves. And and we're gonna make a bunch of rules to make sure that we all follow the law. And that's where the Pharisees would come in. And they were known for knowing the scripture. They knew the law. They often added to it just to be sure that they would keep it. You know, there's a little game that I heard played before and it's kind of, you know, called American Pharisee. And, and just so we don't think that these guys are too far off base on this, if you were told that the speed limit out here on I-20 uh, is uh, 70 miles an hour, and if you go 70.01, you know, you go to jail for life. 70.01, you go to jail for life. How fast are you going to drive? Are you going to drive 70? Because the law says you can go 70. Remember, 70.01, you're gone. What speed do you drive? That's the Pharisees' thinking. Their thinking is, this is what the law says, let's back up over here. And they have some crazy ones in there. Well, at least we think they're crazy. They would say that a, a woman was not allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath. And why is that? for fear that she might see a gray hair and want to pluck it out. And in the process of plucking a gray hair, simulate the, act, the action of plucking grain in the field and thus working and violating the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees had these rules and they wanted to follow the law, but that became all they wanted to do and they set themselves apart. And we see from how Jesus exposed them many of them weren't true followers of god but but religious leaders who had just trampled on people and so now then the third group i kind of mentioned is the separatists that was uh, represented by the essenes that was a group of jews who said you know what we can't even be around the romans we can't be around even other jewish people who don't obey the law So we're gonna move away. There was a group that went to the north end of of the Dead Sea and they they were known as the Essenes and they set up life there and that's how they were gonna live. By the way, they were also ones who wrote what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which we have. And so the Pharisees were the group that really wanted to follow the law and to live pure. They were big on religious ceremony. They had the dress, they had the activities. They were also teachers of the law they were rulers and they were also works-based salvation people. In other words, you earn your salvation. How do you earn your salvation, you ask? Follow the law, follow all the rabbinic tradition that tells you what you must do and how, much, how you must live. So there's an example of a Pharisee we have in Luke 18. You might remember this passage of scripture but two men go to the temple to pray. One is a a sinner, a tax collector, and he knows it. The other is a Pharisee, and we get a little insight into their prayers. I'm not gonna cover the tax collector's prayer, but the Pharisee prayed, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or tax collectors. I fast twice a week, and I tithe." There's his prayer. That is a Pharisee. Now, when he says those things, you bet you he did it. When he fasted twice a week, I'll guarantee you, he he was strict to the fast. He did what scripture said. And when he tithed, I'll bet you he tithed everything. If his wife had a little herb garden in the kitchen window with a few potted plants that had parsley and chives and other herbs, in, in, in her kitchen, I'll bet you he tithed those as well. He would say, you know what, 10%, boom. We're, we're giving that to God. So he would have followed all that. All of that would have been true about him. But well, what was his heart? Where was his heart? It was far from God. Didn't have anything to do with God. And Nicodemus was also one of the rulers, most likely the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was a very elite Jewish council made up of 70 men. If you want to think of the Sanhedrin, imagine it's like all three branches of our government in one 70-man body that govern everything. So that's pretty elite. If you're in that group of 70 governing, then you, you did pretty well. And then we also know that he was... The teacher of Israel. Illustrious, noble, a master teacher. Tradition tells us he was also wealthy, a successful businessman. And this probably only would have fueled his beliefs that he was obeying God. You see, there was also another belief that said, if you are good, if you are righteous, you will be blessed by God. And that means blessed materially. Therefore, if I have a lot of material stuff, I must be righteous. And so this would only fuel his own belief about himself and that and we know that he had money because we're gonna see well, in, in later in, ch- in chapter 19 of John that he, he gives a lot of um, uh, spices and herbs and aloes uh, for the burial of Jesus, 75 pounds worth of myrrh and aloes, which would have been very expensive so the man, I mean, that amount of, of, of fragrance would be reserved for, like, royalty. So the man had money, and we know that. So when he came to Jesus, he came at night. Now, in John's gospel, light and darkness are used to picture spiritual conditions. You see, it was night when Judas left to betray Jesus. The disciples went fishing at night and did not catch any fish. Night is when no one can work. The Gospel also says that one stumbles when they walk in the night. So when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, we're given insight by the gospel writer that indicates Nicodemus was not a regenerate man. He was not saved. The following discussion with Jesus would kind of attest to this idea. So when Nicodemus approached Jesus, he didn't ask a question. Instead, he paid tribute to Jesus for his signs. John is often called the gospel of signs in there. And the signs, by the way, were always meant to point to something else. When you drive along the road and you see a road sign that has a big bend in it, an arrow with the bend in it, that means the road is going to turn, okay? you don't fixate on the sign and keep going straight. That means you have the sign points to something else. And Jesus' signs that he did, the miracles he did, were always to point to something else. And Nicodemus had at least heard of these signs. And he figured out they mean something, but I don't think he knew what. So Jesus, i mean, sorry, Nicodemus, was probably thinking something like, you know, I'm confused. What I've been taught and grown up believing and even teach to others doesn't match what I'm seeing and hearing now from you, Jesus. So that's why he came at night, probably out of a little bit of fear of the other Pharisees and other Jewish leaders. But he came at night and he's got this question on his mind. But you see, Jesus knew what he was thinking And Jesus knew why he really came to him. You see the end of chapter two, right before this, the the verses right before this. And if you remember, none of these were written with verses and chapters. So the verses right before this says, now when he was in Jerusalem, that's Jesus at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not trust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man For he himself knew what was in man. You see, Jesus sees not only to our minds, but to our hearts. He sees our intentions, and he knows our thoughts. So when Nicodemus was coming to him at night, Jesus knew why. Jesus knew the real question, and so began a theological conversation with Nicodemus. So Nicodemus shows up, and he pays tribute to Jesus, but on his heart, he's got this question about what does it really mean? How does someone really get saved? That's what he's concerned about. So it's interesting how Jesus begins the discussion. If your translation says, truly, truly, uh, a way to to understand that, and your your, uh, translation may also say, I tell you the truth. So he says, I tell you the truth. So he was preparing Nicodemus to hear something that Nicodemus maybe didn't want to hear. But you see, he could say, I'm telling the truth. And he's going to use those signs as evidence that his, me- his message is authentic. I tell you the truth. Now, you, you you just said that no one could do those signs unless he's from God. So listen to me. And it's something that he probably didn't want to hear but it was vitally important that he knew this he didn't respond to the spoken words but the unspoken one i think nicodemus came to him because he realized something something in his life was missing he knew he was only going through the motions and he felt the emptiness of that but it cost him too much in his opinion to admit that he was not part of the kingdom that he didn't have eternal life you see Nicodemus couldn't come to the the point of admitting, yeah, I'm I'm a Pharisee, I'm on the Sanhedrin, I'm the teacher of Israel, but I don't think I get it. You see how that would be difficult for anyone to say? And unfortunately, this is a trap that I think some people in church find themselves today. Perhaps it was somebody who was raised going to church and has Christian parents. They know the right words to use, and they've prayed a prayer, maybe even multiple times they've prayed the prayer. Some may even have te- been uh, be now teachers or other leaders in the church. They know how to conduct themselves and, and how to speak, yet they know they're also not part of the kingdom. They just go through the motions. They've been living a ruse. Now, it would be very difficult and embarrassing to admit that, hey, I've only been putting on a show for y'all, you see how difficult that would be? By the way, this is why we pursue redemptive relationships at Christ Community Bible Church. We want each, everybody here to know that we care about your spiritual condition, your spiritual health. We want to know you at a spiritual level, not just a superficial one. I don't want to hear you spout just the right words. I want to hear what's going on in your heart. You want to know we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with all kinds of things. If you say, Rich, how's your prayer life? You're not going to like the answer. You're going to say, how can you get up there and preach like that? Rich, how's your Bible study going? Well, let me tell you that too. And I'll tell you. It's a struggle. But that's why we pursue redemptive relationships. And what that means is your spiritual health must be my top priority, my top concern, and mine yours. In a redemptive relationship, we can share sins and struggles. We can show weaknesses and fear. And we can also demonstrate true Christian love by desiring only the best for others. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and in his heart he knows, I I really, I'm missing out on something. Here I am a teacher, a leader, a ruler, and there's something missing in my life. So Jesus begins with, Truly, truly, or I tell you the truth. Now, he doesn't ignore what Nicodemus said. Instead, he actually uses Nicodemus' little formula to respond with what Nicodemus needs to know. Nicodemus said, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Here's the formula. No one can unless. Jesus' response reverses this with unless no one can. And he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." So Jesus was gonna just cut to the chase. The question's about salvation. This is what you need to know. I'm reminded of the rich ruler in Luke 18. Jesus knew his heart and responded to him with what he needed to hear. See, the rich ruler came to Jesus and he asked the question, how can I inherit eternal life? He called him good teacher, acknowledging that yes, you're gonna bring the truth. So what does Jesus respond with, to him with? He says, well, you, you know the commandments and what the law says, and he mentions five of them. He says, you know, uh, he mentions adultery, murder, theft, lying, and honoring parents. And what does the rich your ruler say? How does he respond? Confidently, I've done them all from my youth. I'm good. But Jesus sees into his heart. Jesus sees into his life, and he knows that he's not keeping them all. So we're going to start with number one. Thou shall have no other gods before me. Your God is money. And Jesus wants to make that clear to him. So what does Jesus say to him? He says, okay, then let's focus on that sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. The rich ruler went away sad, for he had very many possessions. You see, Jesus sees into the heart of what we need, and he knows what we need. So Nicodemus, here you are talking about signs and how they point to authenticity Here's the truth you need to know. Unless a person is born again or born from above, your translation may say that, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Spiritual birth is required for eternal life. This is regeneration. This is an absolute necessity for salvation. So listen to Nicodemus's response to that. By the way, in this response, I think he gets it. I think he fully understands what Jesus just said. I don't think he likes it, but I think he gets it. And so he says, um, I don't think this isn't a foolish question. He says to him, well, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I think Nicodemus, his mind is being blown. He's heard about the signs. He's heard about Jesus' teaching. He comes to him at night. And he he pays tribute to Jesus, talking about his signs and how you are a man from God. And then Jesus reads his mind. He knows why he's going there. He hasn't said it yet. He knows why he's coming to Jesus. And Jesus reads his mind and answers his question before he's asked it. And Nicodemus' mind is being blown away. But what's Nicodemus' thought? What's his theology? How does he understand salvation? It's works-based. You earn salvation. It's what you do. So therefore, Jesus, if that's required that I must be born again, how do I do that? But see, that was the whole reason Jesus used the birth analogy. We don't participate in our own birth, whether it's physical birth or spiritual birth. And so he uses that analogy and says, but this this is the way it is. He said, well, I still want to do that how do i do that how do i be born again and that's what he's asking in this question and he would have been familiar with the word pictures and the analogies he was the teacher of israel they used parables they used analogies they used illustrations they're all common teaching techniques nicodemus even followed along and also went into third person to continue the discussion His point is what you're saying Jesus is humanly impossible. That's his answer. Jesus, what you just said is humanly impossible. Do you think he understood what Jesus was saying? Yeah, I think he did. That's impossible. How can a man do that? He understood he was confirming what Jesus told him. So you're telling me it's humanly impossible to save yourself. I cannot do anything for my own salvation. He didn't like the answer. Now, Jesus didn't tell him how to be saved. No, he just stated it as a simple statement of fact. This is what happens. We often don't like that answer. We want to be captains of our own destiny. We want full control or at least some control. I need some control, God. Give me something. Nicodemus was probably stunned. Are you kidding me? My whole life has been about good works following the law. And you're telling me that's not good enough? You're telling me I don't measure up with that? I've been doing it all. And he would have known scripture inside and out. Now you tell me I have no part in my own salvation. But See, this all aligns with with chapter 1 of John when it says, But to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Get this part Verse 13 chapter 1, Who were born not of blood, blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, how do you become a child of God? You're only born of God. That's the only way. And so this is the theme that runs throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 2 verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So God made us alive by grace. You have been saved. It says we were made alive Titus, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did you get this? Not by works, by the washing of regeneration. First Peter, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Born again is a work of God, not of ourselves. And it's kind of stunning that Nicodemus didn't get this, that he didn't understand this, since he was the teacher of Israel. Jesus wants him to understand this is not a new teaching. You see, this is Old Testament teaching as well. And Jesus, like a good teacher, just doesn't give Nicodemus the answer. Instead, he gives him hints. He gives him clues. Just this past week, I had a family visiting me, and one of the activities that we did is we went to one of those escape rooms in Fort Worth. I don't know if you've ever been to an escape room or know what an escape room is. It's like a game and a puzzle and a time limit. You have to figure out clues and figure out how to accomplish the tasks and to get out of the room, escape room. And there are cameras watching you, what you're doing, and when they see you getting stuck, they give you little clues there was a little video monitor on the wall and a little clue would pop up like hey uh, use the mirror you know or use the back of that thing over there and little clues and hints would pop up and that's what Jesus does here he gives clues and hints here's the first one Jesus answered verse 5 truly truly I say to you unless one is born of water and the Spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God we must be born of water and the Spirit There have been several proposals or many proposals for the meaning of this water and spirit language. So before I discuss what it is, I want to discuss what it isn't. It isn't physical birth. That's not what it is. This isn't water breaking or another way to describe physical human birth. Jesus isn't trying to say, oh, well, you know, to be saved, you have to have been born and then reborn spiritually. He's not saying that at all. That's not what he's doing. And and that would not have been at all familiar language to Nicodemus. Nicodemus would be like, what? That's not how they spoke back then when they talked of, of birth, physical birth. This is also not water baptism. Again, Nicodemus would not have understood water and the spirit to mean water baptism. In fact, water baptism and Christian baptism wasn't even a thing yet. And so Nicodemus would not have understood it that way. So what would have been a good clue or a good hint to give to Nicodemus? A Pharisee, a student of scriptures, a teacher, the teacher of Israel. Give him a clue that points him to a passage in the Old Testament. And that's what he says, that's what he does. Where, would, where might we see water and spirit used in the Old Testament? Well, probably one of the best places to find it would be Ezekiel 36. Beginning in verse 32, it says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now listen to what God says he will do. Listen to how many times the words I will appear. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree, and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Did you hear water and spirit in there? It says, I will sprinkle you, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Verse 25. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you water and spirit. And the water and the spirit refer to the work that God is going to do. Regeneration, spiritual birth. This is the clue Nicodemus would have to grasp. By the way, chapter 37 of Ezekiel talks about dry bones coming to life. Again, new birth. Now, did you notice how many times God said, I will. I counted more than a dozen. Just to be clear, it's God who takes the initiative. God does the work. A dead man cannot do anything for himself. It's the work of God. There are other passages. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, 19, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. New hearts are coming. Nicodemus had been believing the great lie that a person can earn their salvation, but it's God who gives new birth. The first clue would have been for Nicodemus to understand and to realize that this new birth is something that had been talked about for centuries. It was not new to Jesus. God had always promised he would do a work of new birth in their lives. Next, in verse 6, Jesus gives the second clue. Jesus said that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit and this is a clue about sin flesh cannot produce a spiritual person flesh from flesh spirit from spirit this is a clue about the doctrine we call total depravity that is the inability and unwillingness of an unsaved person to do what is right At the fall in the garden, we were cast into the realm of flesh, sin, and death. And in that realm, we could do nothing righteous or make any choices except those which are in the realm of flesh, sin, and death. A righteous act is sinful if done with wrong motives. And this is described by Isaiah. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So once again, Nicodemus would be reminded of Old Testament passages that deal with original sin and our sin nature. In Genesis 6, the great flood is coming, and God's going to explain why he's going to wipe out all of humanity except for Noah and his family. It says, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. Meaning he's got this sinful nature. Later in Genesis 6, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. In Job, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There's not one. Later in Job, what is man that he can be pure? Or who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? They're condemning all of humanity. The Apostle Paul summarizes a lot of Old Testament quotes teaching about sin nature or the flesh in Romans 3. He quotes from There is no fear of God before their eyes. Nicodemus, flesh from flesh, you understand? You understand the state of humanity because of the fall in the garden and what happened? There is no way to get a spiritual person, a spiritual birth from flesh. It can't happen. And Nicodemus's mind should have been flooded with all of these things because this man knew the Old Testament, and all of these things should have come flooding to him. Nicodemus should be obvious. This is fallen humanity; they can't do anything for themselves. You can't do anything for yourself, for yourself. It's only an act of God. You see, when we, when Adam sinned in the garden. Adam, Eve, and all their progeny, everyone who came after, descended into the realm of flesh, sin, and death. The only things we can do in that realm are to make choices and decisions within the realm of flesh, sin, and death. And unless a merciful God looks down upon us, takes pity upon us, and reaches down and rescues us we have no hope for that's what it means this is what you need to understand Nicodemus but now Jesus makes it personal beginning in verse 7 he changes from third person speech to second person and he addresses Nicodemus directly he says do not marvel that I said to you you must be born again the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Now, this is a difficult truth. We have no control over the Spirit of God, just like we have no control over the wind. Salvation is a sovereign act of grace. All mankind was cast into the realm of flesh, sin, and death. It's only by a sovereign act of mercy we can be lifted into the realm of spirit, grace, and life. God looked upon our pitiful condition and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. God chooses to save us. And again, I know know this is difficult teaching. Nicodemus struggled with this truth and he was a man steeped in the scriptures. In fact, recently I had a conversation with a mother who struggles with this doctrine because she said she can't imagine that God would not choose to save one of her children. We had a great conversation and discussion but she struggles with this doctrine that God chooses to save. See, that was the unspoken question that Nicodemus had. What must I do to have eternal life? Finally, in verse nine, we get another question from Nicodemus. And he simply says, how can these things be? How how can I do this? You see, Nicodemus, even though his mind should have gone to all those Old Testament passages, He still wanted to earn his own salvation. He still wanted to do it himself. How can I do this? So his question isn't so much, how does this happen? But how do I make these things happen? He wasn't quite to the point of crying out for mercy, God save me. He was still trying to figure out, how can I earn my own salvation? What else must I do? So, it's like he was saying, okay, I get it. This is a mysterious work of the Holy Spirit and I have no control over it, but how do I make it happen? And this is why Jesus answers him with the response of you are the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand. The truths weren't hidden in scripture, as Jesus pointed out. So what happened to Nicodemus? Well, for now, he disappears from Scripture in, verse, in chapter 3. doesn't appear again until chapter 7. And in chapter 7, it's about a year and a half later, and Jesus is in uh, Galilee, and the Jews want to kill him. There's a feast of booths. need to go to, to Jerusalem for that, so they migrate down, and, and Jesus is confronted by the Sanhedrin. So Jesus is there teaching and preaching in the temple and the people are listening, and the people are getting excited, and they're starting to ask the questions, "Is this the Messiah? That's what the people are saying. Well, how did the Jewish leaders take that? As you can imagine, not well. The rulers wanted them dead. So I love what they do. They get some of the temple guards to go seize him and arrest him so they can kill him. So take, take the soldiers, go find him. he's not hard to find. He goes to the temple. He teaches and preaches in the temple. Go grab him, bring him back, we'll execute him. They wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. When they got there, they couldn't. So the officers came back. They so said, the soldiers come back to the chief priests and to the Pharisees. And they said, and they asked, Well, why didn't you bring him? We sent you to arrest him. Where is he? And I love their answer. They said, uh, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. I can't get past what this guy says. I'm paralyzed by his words. There's something special about this one. And even the soldiers couldn't arrest him. And so they they kind of mock him a little bit. Have you also been led astray? Then they say this. No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? So now the Pharisees are taking a stand. All right, if you're a Pharisee, you deny Jesus, right? No one's on board this jesus train thing. And that's the, that's the line in the sand they lay down. So now, because Nicodemus doesn't stand up, he's probably still teetering, but he's starting to get there because he kind of steps up and he says, um, hey, um, our, our law doesn't judge man unless it's first, uh, it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? In other words, hey, look, even the Romans don't just execute someone without a trial. That's kind of what you wanted to do. Just go arrest him and execute him. So so Nicodemus in chapter 7 starts teetering a little bit. And even then, they mock him for it. They rebuke him with sarcasm. Finally, we get to chapter 19. And at this point, Jesus had just been crucified. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate granted him permission, so he came and took the body away. Then it says Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. This is what they would do to to put on the body to kind of uh, reduce the, diminish the smell of decaying flesh. And he brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. That's a lot. It's a massive amount. That's a royal amount. So Nicodemus joins his companion, Joseph of Arimathea, and it appears that Nicodemus may by this point have become a believer. We don't know for sure, but it appears that he may have. Tradition says, this is tradition, not scripture, that he was the only person who stood up at Jesus' trial before Pilate and defended Jesus. Tradition says he was baptized by Peter and John. Tradition says that his confession of Jesus was so bold that he would be stripped of his Pharisee role and title, stripped of his position as a teacher, have all of his property and wealth confiscated, and he was banished from Jerusalem. So he wasn't allowed to enter the city again. He was was reduced to nothing living outside the city and his family was stuck inside the city. There's even a little story It says his daughter was so poor that she reached the the point and the shame of digging in dung piles for pieces of grain to remove and clean off and eat just to survive. And one day a rabbi came by and saw her and he felt compassion for her and said, who are you? And she said, I am the daughter of Nicodemus. And the rabbi said, whatever happened to your father? And she said, he came to be a follower of Jesus and was banished. And the rabbi refused to help her. Even some centuries later, uh, there's an ancient document that records that a Nicodemus was martyred in the first century for his devotion to Christ. He was beaten to death by a mob. If This is all true, and I do hope it is, that Nicodemus lost everything he had in this world but gained everything in the kingdom, the world to come. What can you do? Jesus said, him that comes to me, I will not cast away. You can plead with God to give you life. It's his prerogative. You can pray, and he doesn't reject an honest prayer. You can say, be merciful, for I am a sinner. So what do we learn? One, we know that Christ, God, knows our hearts and our thoughts and our minds. Nothing is hidden from him. There is no secret sin that we have. There is no hypocrisy that we conceal. There's no deceit, no falsehood that he doesn't know about. Therefore, we can go to him and confess. He knows you're not going to surprise God. We should feel that ability to go and confess our sins. And second, we should examine our own hearts. Are you saved by grace through faith or are you still depending on your own works? Are you trying to do what it takes to be saved? You see, that's the message. You must be born again. And if you're not, you can cry out for mercy. Finally, how is your evangelism? Does this doctrine prevent you from evangelizing? Because if God's already made the decision, then why should I do evangelism? You would be wrong in that thinking. In fact, the opposite is true. We know that our evangelism will be fruitful when we evangelize those who are saved, who are are chosen those who God has predestined. And we can have confidence in that. And we've been commanded to do that. And what message do you share? Do you tell people how they can be born again? Or do you tell them what Christ has done and lead them to cry out for mercy? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the marvelous truths we beheld. I pray for those here who, may be like Nicodemus. They may be religious and moral people, but they know they don't have eternal life. Would you be merciful for your own glory? Would you save them by your will, wash them with the water of your word, give them a new spirit, give them new life, regenerate them? We ask all of this for your praise and your glory.